Remember and retell the story of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who suffered, went through the passion, went to the cross for our sakes. And we'll tell that story tonight and retell that story through our own experiences as well. You've been given a mail to come through as you came through, and we'll use that to remind us again of God's great sacrifice for us, And we'll be spending some time praying together at the end of the service, remembering again the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come and retell your story and look at your passion, God, we invite your Holy Spirit to come and speak to us tonight through your word, through the reflections. And God, may we know the great depth of your love for us. God, we give you tonight and ask that you would speak to our hearts and to our souls. In your name we pray, amen. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful 
and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. breaking of trust or confidence that produces moral and psychological conflict in a relationship. Many years ago, I was betrayed, and because of this, my self-esteem was shattered, and the psychological effects were profound. And despite my best attempts not to, I actually lived through this portion of my life, this dark time. And I fashioned myself to be strong. I fashioned myself to be independent and hopefully invulnerable. I told myself that I would never let that happen to me again. And in college, I met someone who was different. He helped me strengthen my relationship with God. He helped me believe in love. He was an answer to prayer. He was my rock. But before the three, third crows, <laughs> I was betrayed again, and um, that uh, betrayal left the other one in the dust. So how could there be any hope in this? What's the bright light at the end of the tunnel? This dark time led me to my own Gethsemane, and my own path towards reconnecting with God and strengthening my relationship with him, directly with him. And despite the dark time, I'm happy to have lived through it. And I can honestly say there is hope. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples 
said the same. When I hear this passage, I ask myself, can I be bold enough to be a follower of Jesus? Could I proclaim Jesus as my Lord and Savior when it is not convenient, when it is awkward, when I might face ridicule, perhaps isolation, persecution, pain, and even death? I believe I can be bold in his presence, huddled among a community of believers, but will I abandon him when it is inconvenient? I, like Peter, want to say I wouldn't, but I have shaded away many times already. Even in this modern age of tolerance and mutual understanding, I have at times remained silent instead of proclaiming my belief in Jesus. My fear of being judged and tolerant or maybe even unenlightened um, by others has led me to abandon Jesus. Even though I have felt his forgiveness and seen his miracles, I did not believe strongly enough to be bold in his truth. I have prayed under my breath. I have not seen and taken the opportunities to share the truth with others who do not know him. I have conformed to the world and not carried myself as new in Christ. Isn't this the same as disowning him? When Jesus speaks this passage, I feel his sense of inevitability. His own disciples, those that have just taken communion with him, those who have witnessed all of his teachings and miracles, those who are so lovingly nurtured and protected by him, will, without fail, turn around to abandon him for all of their own reasons. There must have been a deep feeling of heartbrokenness, not just a sting and bite of betrayal, but the deep, penetrating sorrow of loneliness and abandonment. Jesus, who will endure the physical pain of torture and death, must even more endure the sinking pain of isolation by those who are closest to him. The scars of rejection can be much deeper than bloody scars. And I'm sad in pain that Jesus knows my pain of loneliness and abandonment. I'm also grateful for his conquering the heartbrokenness through forgiveness on the cross.
And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What really stood out to me about this passage was in the first half, mainly before the arrest happened, how in the midst of Jesus' distress, he was truthful and direct in his prayer to God. I think in the past, whenever I've read this passage, usually I'm reading chunks of chapters at a time and kind of skim through it because we all know the story. Um, That before he got arrested, Jesus prayed to God, asking that he doesn't go through what's coming next, but um, that he still willingly goes through it. But in reality, in taking a step back and really looking at the word, it clearly indicates that Jesus was in agony um, because he was about to go through something really unjust. It was unfair. He was about to be arrested and and about to go through something horrific and painful and heartbreaking. In thinking about myself and when I'm going through difficult times, whether I'm feeling hurt or angry or judged unfairly, sad or just facing a really hard time and not something I want to go through, my first instinct is to break each part down in my head, um, analyze it, and justify why it's wrong um, and justify why things should be right again. And in short, I end up relying on my own strength to either try to fix it, resolve it, or maybe even avoid it. And it gets so tiring, it's exhausting, because there are those times when rationally thinking things through, it doesn't help. Um, And those are the moments that are most frustrating and leaves me feeling really broken um, because things don't make sense. And so what's beautiful to me about this passage is... um, it really shows that Jesus is like us, that he went through the same emotions as us and as me. Um, And he wasn't lying or pretending to be happy about what he had to go through, Um, but that he really showed God his agony. But he showed it with an open heart and an open spirit. And that gives me a lot of comfort in knowing that I can be completely myself, even my prayers, 
I know I have a tendency to want to pray in complete sentences and in full, complete thoughts and correct justification and bring that all and lay that out to God. But what Jesus shows is that at the end of the day, it's perfectly fine to be myself. Um, I don't need any justification. And it's all in God's hands, and it always has been. It's a reminder that things don't have to make sense to me because he's in control. Some prayers might end up unanswered, just like Jesus asked God to take the cup from him, and obviously it doesn't. But God welcomes this, and I can trust him to be my foundation and do what's best for me. As it says in Psalm 127.1, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And that gives me comfort and hope in knowing that I can rest in his sovereignty, even if it's going to be tough. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. 
And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. As I was reading this passage this past week of what to say, all I can remember was hearing in my head was that at my cousin's trial 16 years ago, I stood there in a court blaming a man for taking away two of my cousin's lives in a drunk driving accident. He'd said nothing, he did nothing, he accepted all responsibility for the lives he had taken that night 16 years ago. I was angry, I was hurt, still am. Hearing this passage made me realize then how angry I was, how I did not want Jesus in my life, how I blamed him for all the pain and suffering I had gone through, especially with my family. But Jesus never gave up on me. Continually knocking on my door, continually knocking on my heart, he kept wanting me to come back to church, but I refused. It was too hurtful. Uh, Some years later passed, I was teaching at Challenger. At orientation, first day of school, I had befriended 24 students, 48 parents. One of those parents was a person who took my cousin's lives. He had been released from jail three years prior. Now here he is with a son in my classroom. The hardest from that day was him seeing my face and me seeing his face. And... Being very professional and respectful, I put a smile on my face, knowing that one full year I would have to be this child's teacher. That was when God gave me hope, because I went to school every day, taught, loved every single one of my kids, knowing that this man's child was in my class. Uh, The hope that I received was knowing that Jesus never gave up on me. He continually stayed with me through my sorrow, my pain, and my sufferings, kept me at his heart, knew full well what I was feeling, but kept me going on strong.
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The crucifixion of Christ, we know, is the climax of redemptive history. We know that. It's the focal point of God's purpose for salvation. Everything culminates in the cross where the Lord bears the sins of the world and therefore provides salvation to all that believe. In a sense, the cross, then, is the climax of God's plan, and it demonstrates the grace, the mercy, the goodness, the kindness, and the love of God like no other event in history ever can. The single greatest manifestation of God's love and grace is seen on the cross. So we can go to the text about the cross and spend an entire focus on God's self-revelation of love, grace, in the cross. It seems to me that that is, for the most part, the intention of the Gospel of John. 
as John writes upon, uh, about the cross, it's always from the viewpoint of God. He shows that it is the fulfillment of the prophecy, that it is God's plan on track, God's plan on schedule. We see at the cross, of, uh, at the Gospel of John, and we read the record of the crucifixion, and we are in awe of the wonder of God's glory, grace, and love in the death of Jesus Christ. But that's not the purpose of Matthew. Matthew approaches the cross from the very opposite viewpoint. Matthew describes the crucifixion not from the standpoint of the goodness of God, but from the standpoint of the wickedness of man. And the focus of Matthew is how evil men are and how much the death of Jesus Christ demonstrates the wickedness of human heart. I would say that the death of Jesus, on the one hand, is the single greatest revelation of love and grace of God. And on the other hand, it is the single greatest revelation of defilement and wickedness of, God's, of the human heart. You have two completely opposite truths monumentally revealed in this one event. And as we look then at Matthew's gospel, we will see not so much the crucifixion on the side of God's grace and love. We see it on the side of man's defilement and weakness. It is the wickedness unmatched. If there is ever a place where the prophecy and statement of Jeremiah 17.9 is seen, where he said, the heart of man is deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, it is here at this place. This is not the only time that wickedness has appeared in the life of Christ before this. Wickedness, wickedness tried to kill him at birth. It tried to discredit his teaching. It tried to stop his miracles. It secured his condemnation to death by violating every standard of justice in the Jewish and Gentile world. Wickedness has already betrayed him. Wickedness has already put the hypocrite's cheek kiss on his cheek. It has arrested him. It has framed him. It has slapped him. It has punched him and spit on him, mocked him and beaten him. Wickedness has done all that, and it is not yet done. For what is the intent uh, to do with Christ? Uh, to do to Christ? Before it is over, wickedness will kill him. And that is the masterwork of wickedness. At one and the same time, the fulfillment of the plan of the gracious God, on the other hand, the supreme effort of wickedness. And through it all, he just endures it. He says nothing. He offers no resistance. He's willing to suffer for sinners, to suffer not only the death on the cross, but everything that came along with it. He will fulfill his calling. He endured uh, such hostility of sinners, it says in Hebrews 12.3. He endured it all, and he knew it was going to come. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So as I prepared to share uh, this evening, God led me through an extremely interesting and humble journey. Um, what I tried to do was step into Jesus' shoes. I tried to relate. I tried to understand. And ultimately, I tried to experience what Jesus was feeling um, as a human being. <clears throat> So late one evening this week, um, my kids were sleeping, uh, I just simply closed my eyes, and I imagined being him, feeling what he was feeling, and the first thing that came to my mind was absolute terror and fear. Fear of the physical pain and suffering, having raw flesh, skin torn, from the beatings, from the whippings, from the crown of thorns that I was wearing. Feeling thirsty, probably because I haven't had anything to drink, having dry lips, being hungry, all these physical ailments and limitations and just complete suffering. And then worst of all, being nailed to a cross with my full body being suspended by just a few nails. And at that point in time, I was just thinking, let alone I can't even hang myself on a pull-up bar for more than 30 seconds. So all the physical pain and suffering, and then came family. Father, why have you forsaken me? Why did you leave me? Where is my family in this time of need? And what about friends, disciples, Aren't you supposed to be here for me in my time of need? When I needed support the most, you all abandoned me. At that moment, I felt nothing but betrayal. And the fear just really resonated deep in my heart that I actually had to stop that evening. I had to open my eyes and just stop. Because all I could ask God at that moment was, where is the hope? I did not feel any whatsoever. After a couple of days, um, I came back to the passage, and God really called out one verse to me, and it was really his last words, Jesus' last words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now with hope, typically I want to focus on eternal life, life after death a life without sin, a life without shame or guilt, a life of love. Heck, I can't even see my dad again who's in heaven. That's what typically draws me towards hope. But in these very seven words, I actually found another type of hope. 
And that's the hope that comes from the relationship of a father and his son. So Jesus calls out, Father, into your hands. What did that mean for me? Into your hands means I trust you, Dad. Into your hands means you are a place of security. Into your hands means it's a place where I can feel completely safe and where I can feel comfortable. To me, this is the type of hope that I can experience here on earth, again, from just the relationship that I have with my father. So before coming here today, um, I actually asked my daughter a question, uh, Karis, and I asked her, what gives you hope? And first she said, uh, can you explain what that means? And so I explained it to her as it's something you can look forward to, something that could happen that you feel really good about. And she told me, you, Papa, and then she said, and Mama too. Uh, You are the ones that give me hope. And right then and there, I just realized that this is the same type of hope that can be found when Jesus called to his Father as a source of comfort and a source of safety. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. The reality of death. It came to me very recently when a pastor friend of mine passed on last Saturday at the coronary unit at Stanford Hospital, critical care unit D-132. And at the very end, The very last words he was saying to me as I stood next to his bed is that I know where I'm going. Such boldness, such boldness and courage for a true disciple of Christ. And so I asked myself a series of questions. How courageous am I in declaring the reality of Jesus' presence in my life? Would I have been willing to be identified with Jesus even if it would cost my status or position? Would I have been willing to align myself with Jesus in death? Am I willing to align myself with Christ 
as I live now in this Silicon Valley culture. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. What does it mean to be a real disciple? It means I'm willing to take a stand for those things which honor his name and reject those things which do not. It means I'm willing to push back against the status quo and risk possible rejection from others. It means ordering my life around kingdom priorities rather than this world's priorities. It means being willing to suffer persecution for the sake of the gospel. It means living out the salt life and allowing Jesus' light to shine wherever he leads me. It means being willing to love those who are unloved, giving to those who lack, forgiving those who hurt me, and connecting with those who are different from me. The disciples, it's interesting that Joseph Aramea was the only one there recovering the body of Jesus. You would have thought that the other disciples would have been right there to care for him. But they didn't show up. Where do I fail to show up in my caring for Jesus? Is it my fragmented prayer life? Is it my preoccupation with my own worldly pursuits? My busyness? My selfishness? No. My hope is not in this life only, as my pastor friend understood. It is well founded in the resurrection of Christ and his promise that those who believe in him will live forever. The reality of Jesus' death for my sins has strengthened my determination to take courage and stand for him because it provides me with more solid evidence that he is who he claimed to be and he is no longer in the tomb.